Lord, for this privilege it is to worship you. Thank you, O Lord, that we can study your word together. Thank you that we can have friends and family here together and worship you in this place and be your church, your body, your family. And so be honored and glorified as we continue to worship now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Great Cup Sunday. I know none of you are watching because, you know, no one really is playing today, but uh, today is Great Cup Sunday, and for Pastor John, um, he's rejoicing because Winnipeg might actually win, right, you know, and, and we know we should be, th- we should be thankful because there's not a lot of good going on in Winnipeg, so this kind of gives them something, you know, to be excited for, you know, I mean, if you're from Winnipeg, it's like, woohoo, you know, and so, anyway, I'm just teasing, you know, all of us Westerners, you know, sulking, but uh, next week, Christmas starts. As we kind of head towards Christmas season, it's called the Advent season, four weeks, and then it culminates Christmas Eve. We're going to have two services here. I would encourage you to be praying about who you're going to invite to Christmas Eve. If you're in town, you're going to invite someone. That's why we're having two services, so we can fill this place twice with people that need to hear the wonderful good news that a son has been given to us, a born to us, who is Christ the Lord. And so we want to share that with our community. That's what it's all about. That's our focus Christmas Eve. We're actually also hoping on December 19th to have a uh, float in the Parade of Lights Festival. What do you call that? Anyway, that parade they have. And so we're going to freeze and have a nice little float where it shows Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. I mean, I think that's just important to have that front and center. In 2013, I took my family overseas for a sabbatical. I was working with a missionary friend in Ireland. And part of that trip was a little trip into Europe. Once you get to Europe, you know, it's easy to fly within Europe. They have these kind of low-cost airlines. And so we thought, I don't know what, let's take our kids and show them parts of the world. This is kind of, for me, just an investment in their education and their development as people and just to show them the world a little bit. So we, so we did that. We, we flew and we decided we'd fly on this airline called Ryanair. Ryanair is sort of a low-cost, budget, no-frills airline. And it's great if you're single or just, you know, a young adult, you know, don't have kids. It's a wonderful way to, to fly. It's kind of an adventure, kind of flying. Like, you, you kind of show up, and, like, there's just a whole big crowd of people there, you know, waiting to go onto the plane. And, of course, what they're doing is they're, is, is they're weighing your bag before you go in, and they're, they're checking each bag to make sure it fits in that little square. And, and if you're an inch off or half an inch off, well, you got to pay some extra money. And, and they're weighing it. If it's a gram over, then you're paying extra money. And so even at the very beginning, you're stressful because you're, like, you're stressed out because you're like, is my bag too big? Is it too heavy? You know, and you're like, oh, man. And so then you, you finally get the old one. By the way, if you didn't print off your ticket, it's $50 to have your pr- pr- ticket printed off at the ticket booth. So you're like, oh, man. So you just got to be really careful. So there's just this anxiety. And then they kind of open the doors. The plane comes up. It's ready to board. They kind of open the doors. And it's just like, it's this free-for-all. Everyone kind of runs to the plane and runs onto the plane and runs into the seats and finds a seat. And, you're, and it's kind of fun if you're, if you're unattached and you're by yourself and you can elbow people out of the way. But if you're, if you're hauling a three and a five-year-old, it's kind of like, whoa, what am I doing here? You know? And so, so you know, we're running onto this plane. Elisa's got the two little ones. I've got the big ones. We've got a, another adult friend with us. So there's a group of seven, right? Because the chances of finding seven seats together on this flame are impossible. Uh, we're kind of, we weren't there early enough, so the group was kind of in front of us. When they opened the doors, they kind of made it there in front of us. We didn't realize you should be running and elbowing and, you know, 
cackling. And, you know, we, so anyway, we get under the plane. There, there, there's a seat here. There's a seat over there. There's a seat over there. You know, and I'm like, oh, oh, you know. And, and I'm walking up. I'm in the front. I got my two older kids. And then Elisa's behind, way back with the two younger ones. And I'm like, what are we going to do here? Like, you can't just put a three-year-old in a seat, right? And so and I'm like, what do I do here? And then, and then I see there's this row that's reserved. <laughs> I'm like, well, wow, that's, that's, you know, I don't see any seat for Elisa. So I'm like, ding, 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 you know, put up a hand. Elisa, here's a row for you. And she sits down. She didn't realize they were reserved. She just sat down and with the kids and they're all settled in. I move up and, and, you know, and we're all, you know, me and my other two older ones, we're all over the plane and further up the plane. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're all sitting there waiting for this plane to take off. I'm like, just get this flight over with, get me to where I want to be. And I'm never going to fly with these people again. You know, I'm done, you know, and, and all of a sudden the stewardess comes up and she's like, Hey, there was a row reserved here. <laughs> you know, and, and, and she's like, hey, did, did, you, did you take a reserved row? And Elisa didn't know that it was reserved. So I didn't take a reserved row. You know, she's just like, oh, you, know, you know, I knew that she did, but she didn't, you know. So, so there they are, you know. She wasn't lying, you know. I didn't, she didn't ask me. She asked her, you know. So, uh, and it's just chaos. Like, just the stress, you know, the blood pressure, you know, it's just. So you, you see that WestJet commercial with cows, you know? Exactly. That's exactly what it's like, you know. You know, and, 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 and so you realize, you know, we're created to have order. We're created to, to respect rules and boundaries and systems and for someone to be in charge and for others to follow. This is the way the world has been created and designed to function and to, to operate. It's really nice to get on a plane and to look at a number on your ticket and say, that's my seat. And if you get there and someone's sitting there, you can just say, look, 18E. Get out, you know. And, you know, it's right there. But but when you're just like, hey, get on, find a seat, good luck, you know. And you're like, man, you know. And so we're created for this order. So as we come to the book of Colossians, and we get to the end of the book, the Apostle Paul, first century, has been writing to this church about about being centered, centering your life on Jesus Christ. You know, finding the target, centering your life on that target. And, and what, what happens at this point is he's like, here's how a Christ-centered life shows up at home and at work. At home and at work. So, so if I have Jesus Christ in my life, what difference does that actually make at home and at work? And the Apostle Paul in the first century writes and says, let me tell you the difference that Jesus Christ can make at home and at work. This is where kind of the rubber meets the road in terms of, of getting your life on target with Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Colossians chapter 3, and we're at verse 18. And this, again, is, is, is going to be an interesting verse because some of you are, are automatically going to, going to just bristle when you see this verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Are there any amens out there? <laughs> Don't say it too loud. <laughs> My wife's not here, so I, I get a free, free reign here. It's just like, I, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Come on, admit it, admit it ladies. You, you feel a little bit of the hair rising on the back of your neck as, as this verse comes up there. There was a group of guys bragging about their leadership in their homes, you know. And the one guy's like, well, every day my wife, you know, has supper at 6 o'clock and it's ready and it's there, you know. And now the guy's like, well, I give my wife a budget and she has got to stick within that budget. You know, I'm the leader, you know. And the other guy, you know, he's like, well, you know, this, just today my wife was on her hands and knees with a broom begging me. And they're like, really? Wow, you know. And yeah, that's amazing. And then one of the guys like, well, what was she saying? Wow, you know, she was begging me. Come on, you know, what was she saying? Well, 
She's saying, get out from under that bed and face me like a man. (laughs) She's begging me. Submit. You can, you can share that one. Feel, feel free. You know, that's, that's a freebie. Submit. This verse has been misused. Uh, there's a different word for obey that's used for children later on in two verses. Not the same word. The command notice is not given to the husbands to make your wives submit. Well, husbands, make your wives submit to you. The command is directly addressed to you women that are married, that as you center your life on Jesus Christ, that you would accept the God-given authority in your home of your husband and allow him to lead in a godly, Christ-centered way. So in the background of this whole passage is this idea that, that people that claim to know Jesus Christ are living their lives targeted with Jesus Christ at the center. So you're not submitting to some, you know, you know, despot or, you know, so, someone who's you know, d- demanding things of you and, and asking, you know, it, it's, it's Christ-centered leadership. Wives, submit to your husbands. The verb means a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. To submit is to re- recognize the relationship of order established by God. Let's just face it. We all live in a world full of authority. It's not a bad thing. We, we, we bristle at it, but like, look, you have a boss. And she has a boss. And he has a boss. And, 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 you know, and, and everywhere you go, this is the way it works. You go to school, there's a teacher. Well, the teacher works under the principal. principal works under the director of education. works under the superintendent. who works under the board of education. who's elected by the people. I mean, I mean, we all live in these hierarchies. And it's not a bad thing. It's just the way society functions. And God says, in the home, I want the man to lead and to be the Christ-centered leader of the home. Protect Provide, guide, lead in a way that points your family to Jesus. But in order for this to work, ladies, you got to let them lead. As is fitting in the Lord. It's not a very popular concept in our society, right? But it's not, it's not a question of value. It's not saying that the husband is more important or or of higher significance to God. It's just saying he's been given the responsibility for leadership in the home. Tim Kimmel, in his his, his book, he he says, submission is the wife ducking so that God can hit the husband. You know, know, that's that's what it is, right? So, so, you know, just get out of the way and let God, you know, pound on the husband. Now, man, this actually, the pressure is on us in in this command. That we are giving our wives something worth following. Something worth following. I read this interesting story, and I just love sharing this story. This is from Andy Stanley's book. He says, when I was 26, I flew to Washington, D.C. to be a groomsman in a friend's wedding. After the reception, the wedding party of 12 or so headed to an upscale bar in Georgetown. Being part of the wedding party, I tagged along. The turning point in the conversation came when the girl next to the girl who started all of this said, and I quote, Andy, I heard a preacher say that the man had to be head of the home because a two-headed home is like a two-headed monster. Is that what you believe? That the man is the head? You know, this is like set up, right? <laughs> Here's the gist of what I said, which was directed at the girls who were asking the question. 
Before I answer your question, imagine you're married to a man who genuinely believes you are the most fantastic person on the planet. He's crazy about you. You have no doubt that your happiness is his top priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. To use an old-fashioned term, he cherishes you. He's not afraid to make a decision. He values your opinions. He leads, but he listens. He's responsible. He's not argumentative. You have no doubt that he would give his life for you if the need arose. You never worry about him being unfaithful. In fact, to quote an old Flamingo song, he only has eyes for you. The longer I talk, the more I sense their resistance ebbing. When I finished, I paused and asked, would either of you have trouble following a man like that? The girl to my right blurted out, well, hell no. (laughs) I want to meet that guy. (laughs) Everybody laughed. Without realizing it, she made my point. It's easy, perhaps natural, to submit to someone who genuinely has your best interest in mind. There's no fear. No reason to resist. Conversely, anyone who has your best interest in mind has, in effect, submitted to you. That person has chosen to leverage him or herself for your benefit, basically saying, you first. Man, that's the kind of leadership God is calling from us, which makes it very simple for our wives to submit as is fitting in the Lord. If your husband is suggesting you do something illegal, immoral, uh, questionable, and obviously that's, this is not what he's talking about here. He's, he's talking about as you move forward on the target of Jesus Christ, he's going to lead you. And you just go with him. You're a team, shoulder to shoulder, moving forward in Jesus Christ. Well, he goes on in the next verse and talks to the husbands, men, you know. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And this is, of course, the, the contrast to submission is that you're submitting to a man that loves his wife. And this, as I read earlier, just, you know, that illustration there. To love is to put the needs and to sacrifice oneself for the needs and interests of others. And in order to be that, that godly leader in your home, men, we, we have to f- look to Christ as the example and follow Christ. And as we move forward with Christ, that means we love our family and we put their needs ahead of our own. We are keenly aware and interested and invested in seeing that everyone in our home is moving towards the same target. And we love our wives. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul will tell them, like, as Christ loved the church. I mean, Christ died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. So, so we're sacrificing, we're, we're surrendering ourselves so that we can work in the best interests of our wives. And he kind of adds that little comment there, do not be embittered toward them, or the word could be do not treat them harshly. This is the idea kind of of those hurtful jabs that sometimes we can sort of lob at our wives as men. And he's like, don't be doing that. You've got to have this gentleness. And you think of the beginning of, of Colossians chapter 3, and, and he talks about, you know, keeping your minds on things above. And then later on, he talks about clothing yourself with these virtues and the character of God. And he's like, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. He's like, put on these things and, and, and make sure that comes out in the way in which you treat your wives, in your actions and in your words. Love your wives. Now, understand, first century, there was no expectation societally that you had to love your wife. Your wife was a piece of your property. 
she did whatever you told her to do. If you, if you didn't like her, you could just get rid of her. I mean, the, the, the women had very few rights in the first century. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and, and elevates the status of women in the church and says, oh, guess what, husbands? You know, your wife submit to you. Yes, but you need to love them and not be embittered against them. You need to not be harsh with them. You need to show how this target makes a difference in your marriage. Love your wives. Married couples, this is your only hope for a long-lasting, successful marriage, Jesus Christ. Your only hope. You try to do it on your own power and effort, and I'm just saying good luck, but it's, it's, it's going to be tough, hard. And, but with Jesus Christ at the center, you have a whole new resource and power available in your marriage that will bring it to a, a level that, that, that the, the world will, will just envy They'll say, what is it about their marriage? How come come they're way further ahead and they're still loving each other and enjoying each other? It's because of Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let's show the world something different, that Christ actually makes a difference. But then he comes on in verse 20, he talks to the children. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in everything. Don't you hate that word, everything? <laughs> Children obey your parents in everything. Any amens out there? You know? <laughs> For this is pleasing in the Lord. Some people think it's kind of cute when kids don't listen to their parents. Ha ha ha, isn't that cute? And Apostle Paul would say, no, it's not cute actually. You're not really helping your kids when they don't learn to obey. King Edward VIII, this was years ago, came to visit America and he says, he said, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. (laughs) It's not popular to actually expect your children to obey and to listen. You are going against the flow of society when you actually say, no, children should obey their parents. But this is what the Bible says. This is not my idea. I'm not, this is not Mike Nadelko's top 10 parenting tips. Like, this is God speaking here. Okay, so if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God's word. Children need to obey your parents in the Lord, of course. Uh, we can't ask our children, you know, to, to work, you know, in a sweatshop for us. Or you know, we have to, you know, there's a context for this, understand. But, but as we move our families in this direction towards Jesus Christ, there's going to be times when we, we ask for obedience. And, and the children maybe don't like it, but you need to receive it. Because we want your best interest for you. We want God's best for you. You know, in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and your mother. And that commandment comes with a promise that you may dwell long in the land. It's the only commandment with a promise that if you fulfill this commandment, God will look after you and establish you and bring you security. And so here in the New Testament, it's reiterated obey your parents and everything, for this is pleasing in the Lord. And he probably is speaking to the teenagers when he says this. And I know you teenagers are like, oh man, when your parent takes away your phone or your iPad, it's because they see that becoming a barrier to you moving in this direction. When your parents suggest that maybe you stop hanging out with that group of friends, it's because they see the friends getting in the way of this target in your life. And the command of scripture is for you to listen to your parents and say, okay, I'm going to stop hanging out with those friends because they want me going here and not somewhere else. 
as you get older and you start dating people and your family starts saying, whoa, I'm not sure about that person, stop and listen. If your whole family is kind of like, eh, you know, maybe they know something. They know you better than the person you're dating. And if they're kind of like, eh, maybe you should just stop and like, take a time out on the date, you know, and, and, and see where that goes. Like, listen, because we, we want what's best for you. Like, I'm speaking as a dad here, and I got my kids sitting right in front of me here, you know, and so sometimes we have to make those tough decisions. But you see, I'm accountable to God for your life. And I'm going to do everything I can to get you on this target. But you got to decide to pursue this target. But as long as you live in my house, this is where we're going. We're not going anywhere else. And if your friends, your iPad, your job, your sports, your entertainment, whatever, if, if there's things that, that, are, that are keeping you off of this, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be stepping in the way and I'm going to irritate you about it. But it's because I want you to get this right. If this gets right, then everything else works out. If you're on target with Jesus, you're going to meet someone that's on target with Jesus someday. And you two together are going to be on target with Jesus. And that's going to be the best day of, of your life and of our life. To see, you know, you guys get married to a godly person and move forward with God and keep with Christ as the center of your life. And that's what we want. So that's why when, when, when this command's given, it's because we are accountable to God for you. That's why we want your best. So kids, with Christian parents... You have to give them the benefit of the doubt sometimes and just trust them. God's given them the authority in your home and a responsibility for you. And sometimes they won't give you the why. They'll just say, do it. And the scripture is really clear, just do it. And sometimes they'll have that discussion and they'll explain it, but other times they won't. And you just need to say, okay, mom and dad, I trust that you have my best interest and, and what God's best interest for me and for the family at stake. So I'm, I will obey you. Even if I don't like it, I will obey you because it's the right thing to do. And it's pleasing to the Lord. But then in verse 21, he comes back and he kind of puts some context in here. And he says, now fathers, don't provoke your children so they won't become disheartened. See, the challenge sometimes is, is as dads, we, we push. We want the best, right? And, and, and this is even on, an, on a non-spiritual plane, right? This is what dads do with hockey, right? I want you to make the NHL. So I'm going to push you, 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 push you. And then a kid turns 16 and he burns his hockey equipment and he walks away and never steps on the ice again. Why? Because he just got disheartened with it. And in a spiritual way, we can do that. We can push, 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 push. And we can, you know, I'm authority. I'm God's giving me the authority. You know, you need to do this. You need to, you know, and we're stressing and we're pushing and we're stressing. And he's like, look, look, dad, you are the leader, but lead with grace and with gentleness and with kindness, with these, you know, verse 12, with those compassion, you know, make sure that, that your leadership is, is centered on Jesus Christ and you're not pushing your kids away from Jesus. If you grew up in a legalistic church, you know what this feels like. Some of you, you're not. You, you, in your heart, you know what I'm talking about. Um, your dad maybe was a spiritual man, but you kind of saw two sides of it. You put it on a Sunday morning, and then during the week it was hell at home. And you might have even been turned off Jesus because of your, of your, of your parents or of your grandparents or of someone in your family that was just so fanatical about it, but it just lost the, the grace and the Christ-centeredness of it. And, and this is what he's talking about. Don't provoke your children. Don't, you know, poke at them. Just be aware that, that your leadership needs to come and, and be an encouraging leadership, dads. So understand, who's getting beat up the hardest here? It's me. It's you men in this room that are married with children. We are the ones getting hammered here. Wives, they only get one little command. Kids, you only get one command. We get two. Love. 
don't provoke, you know. <laughs> God's picking on us if he's picking on anyone, but, he, but it is a challenge, man, to be the spiritual leaders in our homes. And as we watch, you know, the slide of our culture and our society, you know, the dad has become the, the laughing stock of the family, right? He's the butt end of all the jokes, kind of the one that everyone puts down, and, and we think that's funny. And the scripture presents a totally different picture. It presents a godly, loving, caring, compassionate, but strong leader in his home who cares about everyone and their spiritual life in his family and does everything that he can for his wife's spiritual growth, for his children's spiritual growth, for reaching out into the community with the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and he is the, you know, he's taking that responsibility seriously. But dads, we, we got to be careful that we're not prodding our children away from Jesus. We need to be an encouragement. And that comes out of relationship and it comes out of time. And sometimes that means that in Lloyd Minster that we need to be a little countercultural and put our families first. Even before work. Even before the business. Before career. Before our own personal hobbies and pursuits. That the family, our marriage and our children needs to come before that. And we find a balance in that. Fathers, do not provoke your children. And then it comes, you know, shows, you know, being Christ-centered at work, because we see that in verse 22, and we have this interesting scenario here. It says, slaves. And you're like, slaves? What are you even talking about here? Slaves, you know, obey your earthly masters in every respect, not only when they're watching, like those who are strictly people pleaders, but with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. What we have in the first century is this, this slave culture. Probably 40% of the Roman Empire was slaves. Maybe you've watched that movie Spartacus, you know, the old one, is classic, and it kind of shows the, the kind of the culture of slaves. Everyone has slaves. I mean, if you look at, at, at places that built significant architectural, you know, things that lasted today, it was all built on slave labor, right? Egypt, you know, um, Israel, uh, Rome, Russia, you know, <laughs> it's all, it's all, you know, slave labor, you know, and, and, but this is part of the culture. So you're like, what happens when, when people come to know Jesus Christ and they have slaves? What are they supposed to do? And the Apostle Paul applies this principle to that social situation. He doesn't ask that they just release all the slaves. He was saying, live out the, your Christianity, your Christ-centeredness in the place in which you were called when, when, when you became a Christian. So that means for slaves, you're, you're obeying your earthly masters. You're, 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 you're accepting the fact that this is where God has placed you, but I, I can glorify God even in this situation. Now understand, in the book of Colossae, we have this situation in the background. I mean, Paul's ministering in Rome. He's in prison, house arrest, but people are coming and going. And as he's sharing in the gospel, people are coming and going. This guy comes in and he hears the gospel and, and he, he, he's convicted. He's like, wow, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And, and wow, I need that in my life. And, and I need to move forward with, with Jesus. And so he, he receives and he, he believes in it and he, he takes a step of faith. And, and, and then he's like, man, I'm so excited to be in, in this new life with Jesus. And then he's like, but Paul, I got a problem. I'm a runaway slave. And it's even a bigger problem than that, Paul, because you know my master. You guys are buddies. <laughs> my master Philemon, you know, he, I, I kind of ticked him off. I, I took some things when I left. <laughs> I caused a big kerfuffle back there in Colossae. I've been on the lamb and running ever since, but now I've come to know Jesus Christ. What am I supposed to do, Paul? And Paul's like, oh man, I'm stepping into the middle of a very dicey situation. 
runaway slaves had to be treated very harshly in order to send a message to everyone else, right? So when you had a runaway slave, you brought him home, you beat him publicly, you flailed him, and if you wanted, you could kill him, and, and nothing, that was totally fine. It was your property. But with Christ now in the picture, what does that look like? You got this runaway slave, rebellious, probably stole from Philemon. And they're part of this Colossian church. The Apostle Paul's friends with the master. And now he's, he's kind of the spiritual father to the slave. And he's like, what are we supposed to do? So in the book of Colossians, we have this extended section on this slave-master relationship. Why? Because it was a hot issue in the church. What happens now? Slaves and masters are together worshiping Christ together. This happened in no other setting in the first century in Rome. In the Roman Empire. And their masters never socialized together. They did not, you know, gather together in a room on, on an equal footing. But in, in the church, they did. But what he's saying here is like, okay, slaves, be obedient. And we can, we can let's apply this to, to our work situation, okay? Some of you feel like slaves anyway. So just imagine this is your work situation. How does God want you to work? How does this Christ-centered reality affect the way you work? And it says, this is how it works. That you're obeying and you're working hard even when no one is looking. With a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Because you know God is always looking. Some of you have worked with people that don't work when people aren't looking. You, you know what I'm talking about. I had, I had a, a friend, a guy, a guy I worked with. My first job was at a feed store and, you know, we would load up the trucks. We'd go come in for fertilizer feed and, you know, 25 kilogram sacks, 40 kilogram sacks, and that was kind of, you know, a great way to work out. But it was funny. I had this guy that I worked with. We were kind of the, you know, the Joe boys. We kind of did all that loading and, you know, grunt work. And it'd be funny. A guy would show up needing 100 sacks of fertilizer and suddenly my, my partner is out, is lost. He's somewhere, you know, he's nowhere to be found. You know, and there I am. You know, it's like, great. You know, and, and you know, as long as the boss was around, he kind of had a little spring to his step. When the boss wasn't around, he found his way to the forklift and would play around in the yard. And you know, but he's like, you know, when people aren't looking, how are you working? With a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Just the constant awareness that God is watching. Some of you that are on hourly pay. Um, you know, there's a temptation sometimes to do your own things on work time, right? I'll just check Facebook for a few minutes. <laughs> I'll just do this or, I'll, you know, I'll do that. I'll, you know, even in March, you can watch the NCAA and there's like a boss button where you can press. And, you know, so if someone walks by, all of a sudden a spreadsheet shows up and then you can press that button again and you can watch the game, you know, at work. It's very convenient. But it's like, what are you, do you realize that God is watching your work all the time? It's the same thing at school. You know, God's watching, even when no one else is honoring the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 23. He says, whatever you're doing, work at it with enthusiasm or with your whole soul. As to the Lord and not for people, because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ. Like how, how do you function as a slave, as a Christian in the first century? How are you supposed to respond? He's like, here's how you respond. You work hard. You keep your mind that you're, you're, you're pleasing God. You're serving the Lord Christ. And here's, what, here's the key to this whole section. The Lord Christ. When Christ comes in, and, and how does it affect me as a husband, me as a wife, me as a child in the home, me as an employee or an employer? How does that how does it affect us? Because you're serving the Lord Christ. Christ. 
right? Better answer that, or I'm going to embarrass you further, okay? Turn that thing off. Come on, smarten up. You know you're not supposed to have that thing on in church. I'm just kidding. It could have been my phone for all I know. I don't turn that thing off all the time either, so that's why I leave it in the office. Because Sorry to embarrass you. It's okay. We all, we've all had that happen. Serving the Lord. Now, here's the key. See verse 24? You have an inheritance waiting for you. Some of us are working for something here on this earth. And I'm telling you, you're never going to find it. But when you get your, your heart and mind set on the target, which is Jesus Christ, you realize that every, the direction you're going actually doesn't end here. It ends in glory. He's like, even as a, as a slave, you have nothing in this life. When you die, you die penniless and you die without property, without rights. But guess what? Paul says to them, you have an inheritance in the Lord. Serve the Lord Christ. And this is a faith thing. We have to believe this, that, that nothing that I'm doing, that, that I'm building up here on this world is going to last. And it won't. Your kids will get it. And then ultimately it says in the New Testament that this whole earth is going to be burned by fire. So all the stuff you're, you're working at, squirreling away and building up, kingdoms for yourself, mean really nothing. But when you work for Jesus Christ, it lasts forever and ever and ever. Serve the Lord Christ. And he offers this little reminder, verse 25. He says, for the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there are no exceptions. Okay, some of you have not been treated well in a job in the past. Some of you have been at the wrong end of, of firing and layoffs. Some of you have been, have been mistreated at work, and, and you wonder, does, does anyone notice? Does, does, is, anyone, is, any, is there going to ever be an accounting for this? And, and Colossians 3.25 is a reminder that, yes, God will hold everyone accountable. And this is a warning to the masters sitting in the church there saying, yeah, the world says you can beat on your slaves, even kill them, and it doesn't matter. But Christ says something different, and he will hold everyone accountable for their leadership and for their followership. And in chapter 4, verse 1, kind of the end of this section, he says, Masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness. Because you know you have a master in heaven. He says, you're going to get up there, and guess what? There's going to be a great reversal. Your slaves may, may be leading you in heaven because of his position with Christ, and you may be the, the slave in heaven. So, so just be, be, be aware, you're heading up there, and you're going to be held accountable for the way you treated the people that worked under you and for you. We need authority in our life. And the thing about this target is that Christ is our supreme authority. He's the authority. And, and it works when you have a perfect authority. When authority gets, gets, gets you know, messed up, that's, that's when bad things happen, right? When people misuse authority, right? When, when, when police go too far, when, you know, when, when, when leaders you know, hurt people and, and harm things. And I mean, authority can be misused, but proper authority under the ultimate authority of Christ brings order and health to marriage, to homes. The reason we want our children to obey their parents is because that's how they learn to obey God. We, we, we teach them that there is God-given authority as little kids, and then they can grow up to, to respect and respond to God's authority. And we work, your kids are going to work someday, and they're going to have to respond to authority, and they're going to have to be in authority. And so, But when Christ is at the center, it provides a just and a fair balance to all of that. The best employees 
should be the Christian employees. The best employers should be the Christian employers. The best managers should be the, should be the Christian managers. If we apply this Christ-centered principle to, to home and to work, it, it is transformative if we apply it. If your kids learn to obey, they will be the best employees. <laughs> People will be clamoring for your kids in universities and in jobs because they just know that they can count and trust your kids to get the job done. Our marriages will be life-giving when Christ is at the center of them. So men, it's a challenge for us to step up and to lead. Women, it's a challenge for us to, to, to join with our husbands and lead together. Children, it's a challenge to say, mom and dad are, are God's leaders in our home and we're going to follow them. But, and, and we want to become healthy adults just like them someday. And then in the workplace, it's like, okay, I want to lead with integrity. I want to serve with, 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 you know, with, with hard work. With, when no one's watching, I want people to see, and no matter what, that I am serving Jesus Christ first. Christ makes a difference. If you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, if he's not the center of your marriage, if he's not the foundation of your parenting, if he's not the reason you get up and go to work and do your best job at work, then you will find life to be depressing, dark, discouraging, heavy, hard. But when you step into this target, it changes all of that. Jesus Christ. And as Paul kind of brings this book to a close, uh, there's one more section. I'm going to leave that for after Christmas because it deserves its own treatment. It's on prayer. But as he kind of closes the practical part, he's like, look, guys, this makes a difference in real life. In real life. And each of you in your own life know that there's a point in this passage that applies to you that, that you need to, to, to just step forward with and say and put it into practice. But he's like, this makes the difference. Let's make it make a difference. As we... Live for Jesus Christ in our community. Would you just pray with me as we close? And again, I, I just want to, I always want to just invite, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I know I'm getting into some practical stuff this morning, but Jesus Christ died for your sins. God sent the Son to this world because he loves us. The Son died on the cross and he rose again. That everyone who believes in him has eternal life. And the starting point is to know Jesus Christ and to be in a relationship with God. If you don't have that, none of this will make any sense to you. But if you have that, you begin to take a step where this does make sense and this works and it's, and it's good and it's beneficial for you. And so we want just everyone in this room to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you don't, today you can receive Jesus Christ. For those of us that do know Jesus Christ, this is a reminder that this needs to be put into practice and that it's for our benefit. And so, Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we surrender and submit to your leadership in our lives today. You have the right to tell us what is best, and we receive that from you. Help us to understand and to apply that to our lives today in a way that honors you. Lord, I pray for the marriages in this church. That husbands, as fathers, we would be leading spiritually in our homes. That wives would submissively follow the leadership of their husbands, but that they would be teams centered on Jesus Christ. Husband and wife and family, children together, moving forward, moving up and out in new life in Jesus Christ. Lord, give our children, especially our teenagers, the ability and the heart to obey their parents, even when it's hard so that they could please you. Lord, we want the best for our kids. And we pray for our young kids downstairs and for the young parents who are often overwhelmed with the task of raising toddlers who move from innocence to sinfulness so easily. Lord, give them the courage to lead 
in a godly way to give their children the blessing of obedience in their lives so they can move up and out with you as they grow in their, in their physically and spiritually. And Lord, I pray that our community would see in the families in this church something different. That there be just something attractive about our marriages, about our homes, about, about, our, par- about our parenting, and about, about just the way we, we spend time together that, that's, that people say, man, there's something different about them, and that's because Christ is the center. So I pray you the blessing of Christ upon these families for your glory, Lord, that we could draw others to Jesus Christ through the, through the difference that you've made in our lives. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's time for the offering.